Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. I'm Vatsal Khandelwal and I'm a junior research fellow at Merton College, University of Oxford. So today I'm going to talk to Ben Golub from Northwestern University about the process behind his paper, Signaling Shame and Silence in Social Learning, co-authored with Arun Chandrasekhar and He Yang. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So for those who haven't read the paper, can you tell us what it is about? At a very high level, the goal is to understand why people don't get as much information as they might, even though that information is out there in their communities. And so we think that, especially as the world gets more connected and the costs of many technologies like internet connectivity and and access to information decreases, people have opportunities, especially people in poor countries, have opportunities to connect to the broader economy uh, and have better lives in a lot of ways. But the first step of that has to usually occur locally. People have to get information. And so our big motivation is, do people seek out efficient amounts of information in their community? Now, there are a bunch of information frictions that one could imagine inhibiting the flow of information, let's say in a village. And based on some survey evidence, actually, and a lot of soul searching uh, in the field, we focused on thinking about people being constrained by signaling and shame concerns. The idea that people might not ask enough because they're worried that it'll reveal that they don't already know or they're not smart enough to find out themselves. And shame, which is a related psychological effect, but different in a way I'll describe, but also has to do with basically feeling bad about being in an ignorant uh, position. And so our study is basically trying to examine how somewhat realistic environment that we set up in the field, but it's still a lab experiment, we can actually see those forces manifesting and inhibiting learning and people foregoing considerable amounts of money to manage these kind of image-related concerns. And so we we wanted to, we thought it was real, and the, the study is all about sort of examining how it actually looks in a setting very close to one that, that motivated us. Right, I see. And, and just to clarify, so the study was conducted in India. And can That's you right. describe the communities a bit? Like where, where was the lab and field experiment conducted? Yes, we did it in these rural and peri-urban villages that are in Karnataka, a few hours drive from Bangalore, usually that's where our field. So we have a JPAL field office in Bangalore, and then people drive out and do experiments in the villages that are usually two or three hours away. And so there's, there's small villages, typically a few hundred people. And we basically went to people and offered them games to play with other people in the village that depended on, on knowledge. But the idea, you know, the people are fairly sophisticated. They, they have access to cell phones and a lot of technology. And so our goal was to set up experiments that somewhat resembled interactions they might have uh, when they're getting information about a possible opportunity in the city or something. But that was sort of this, the fact that it, it's villages where people are sort of interacting locally, but it's close to these economic opportunities that are in more urban areas was a kind of an important part of why we did it there. So before we focus more on this paper, I wanted to ask you a few questions about co-authorship. So you've got two co-authors on this paper, Arun Chandrasekhar, who's from Stanford, and He Yang, who's an economist at Amazon. When and how did you start collaborating on this paper together? So how did the initial idea come up? Arun and I have been friends through the networks community for a long time. We sort of grew up together, in, although we were in different places. So Arun was an MIT student, I was at Stanford. We were working on networks. We met, we'd been friends and we'd been talking about ideas related to this for many years. The genesis of the paper was at a conference, as it happens, Esther Duflo's Calvo conference, when she was the first recipient of the Calvo Armengol Prize, she held a conference yeah. in Andorra. And Abhijit Banerjee gave a, a little informal, there was a, a sort of totally informal panel session, which is sort of a hit or miss thing. Sometimes people just ramble, but Abhijit gave this very insightful riff, basically saying that we're taking so seriously the networks in which people talk, but maybe the main thing is that people don't talk, that people don't use social networks enough, at least for the kind of things that models often start with. Models say, oh, job information is so important, so surely people are talking about jobs all the time. And Abhijit said, well, maybe people are actually talking about football. That And why do they talk about you know football with their friends rather than getting more valuable information. And we sort of, that sort of was a little earworm for us. It kind of got into our heads and we just kept thinking, well, what if the main thing is that they don't talk enough? And so Arun and I had been thinking about that for a long time. And eventually we sort of, in some conversation, it clicked for us that we could start investigating why don't they talk in the field. And then we, so it's quite a long, quite a long path in the sense that there was this low boil idea. And then when Arun and I decided to start taking it seriously, 
we did preliminary field surveys that had not that were not this paper. They were we sort of tried to start with an open mind and say, well, if Abhijit is right, and if in fact a big big issue is that people just don't talk enough, then what is going on there? And we did field surveys that were not conceived with any particular answer in mind. We just wanted people to tell us. And so that's sort of that later. So I've only gone, gone through part of the story, but that got us to the point of doing stuff in the field that would eventually lead to this paper. Right. And how did you uh, collaborate with uh, your third co-author, He Yang? So yeah, there's some stuff that we're skipping here where we did field surveys, we had field RAs, but after Arun and I had a pretty clear hypothesis about stigma going on, He Yang was a student at Harvard who was uh, talking to me about, she was very interested in, in networks at the time. She actually later ended up doing more pure finance, household finance, but we were talking about networks. She was very interested in these issues. And I was telling her about this project that was in its design stages. And she seemed eager to think about I found it very productive just to tell her about what I was doing. And so we decided we would join forces. She was very helpful. I think she might've been initially an RA on the project. Yeah, I think I hired her as an RA to help start some of the IRB stuff and preliminary things. And then we talked so much about the design and she was so helpful for thinking through actually how to do the experiment in the field that we decided that she was becoming, you know, a collaborator. And so we wanted to include her as well. So while we're talking about co-authors, you have written several papers jointly with other co-authors. How do you select whom to work with? And uh, what is your preferred number of co-authors to work with? Yeah. So I think the process of selecting co-authors is a lot like the process of selecting friends in that most of, most of us don't think of it as a very planned conscious selection. There are some patterns. So in the Arun case, which we've talked about, we had a very similar response to this shared stimulus of the Abhijit talk. And we were inspired to think about the same questions. And we had very complementary skills. He was an empiricist who was very interested in eigenvalues and theoretical properties of networks. And I'm a theorist who loves the relevance that's brought by field experiments. And so that was like shared interests, complementary skills. We, in some sense, should have selected each other in kind of an efficient matching model. Like we were a similar age, so similar career incentives, everything aligned. We didn't know each other before. So that was sort of, in some sense, pure choice and really an intellectual match. And then in terms of how I, other many other co-authors I've met a little bit more randomly, and I wouldn't have foreseen that they were not necessarily such a natural fit, but you know, just like friendships, you might strike up a conversation with someone at the office or wherever, and you, you end up, I think it is like that. And it has helped me a great deal to be open. And even co-authorships that, unlike the Arun one, didn't necessarily make, I didn't exactly know what was going to come out of them or why there was a complementarity. Being open like you are, like people without, you know, people who don't yet have too many friends are usually open to figuring out where relationships go. I think I've been that way academically, and it's helped me a lot. In terms of number, I think that's a very important, like, you know, I think especially recently, I feel like the optimal number is the one that lets you be very responsive at those times when your co-authors want to work, at least, you know, maybe not every time, but over. So I think Matt Jackson gave me the advice that the best way to collaborate with people is to, the best way to work, to decide when to work on projects is when other people want to work. And I think a sign of having too many co-authors is when some of them really want to work, you feel like you just are stretched too thin and you promise that time to someone else. That's a sign that it's certainly not time to acquire new ones. But I think my philosophy has just been openness with the exception of a few rare cases where I can clearly see the value proposition in a relationship. I think that happens more with like someone has some data that you really want. But my co-authorships usually start by being open to conversations and they gradually develop often into, oh, let's work on this together. And then I manage the number just by looking at how I feel like, do I feel like I, I'm acquiring too many obligations to too many people? And if the answer starts to be yes, then, I'm, then I sort of say, I have a, a good reason to say, look, I would love to work on this, but I can't start a new project right now because of this kind of lo load. Right. So because you mentioned Matt Jackson and because we don't get this opportunity to talk to a fantastic network theorist about this topic again and again, I want to ask you something very specific about the co-authorship model in Jackson and Wolinsky. And where, you know, the efficient outcome is that among n number of researchers, it's efficient to have n by two separate pairs. Now, do you think this would truly maximize social welfare and isn't observed because these networks are unstable? Or do you think there are sort of skill transfers from your co-authors, co-authors to you? 
that are not sort of uh, accommodated or embedded into the model, which is why there's this tension in the model between stability and efficiency. While in the real world, an efficient network could be one where it's not just pairs, it's it's groups of people working together. Yeah, those are really great and deep questions. I mean, so as as many of our listeners probably know, Jackson Walensky is a, is maybe the canonical sort of starting point of the modern networks literature in the sense that it was it's always cited as the origin of economist modeling deliberate network formation and, and analyzing it in a standard economist way. You've been thinking about stability and efficiency. So in that model, I guess social it's socially efficient for people to just pair up. And you're completely right that it doesn't capture the fact that information flows there. It's about production just within the relationships and there's no room in the model for information to flow. And I do think co-authorships pretty uniquely create relationships where information flows well. I mean, because other, otherwise you could think that information is sort of orthogonal to co-authorship. You can learn from whoever you want, have friendships and intellectual friendships, but your co-author relationships would be spread in, would be still in pairs. One simple way that it does that is that co-authors spend lots of time together trying to work on things, but you can't be working all the time. And so you have open stretches of time, like a lunch, where you can have conversations that are not particularly purpose-driven, but result in a lot of learning. And so like for Stephen Morris, is the, the famous um, game theorist is another one of my co-authors. We've had a longstanding collaboration, which hasn't yet resulted in any uh, publications to my, which is sort of my fault, but it's amazing to me, the amount of Stephen, I would never ask for two hours of Stephen's time to just learn for me to learn about higher order beliefs and big ideas in game theory. But those kinds of stretches do happen sometimes in the course of our collaboration. And that's been like, the best graduate course I've ever taken. And I and, I, and now I know much more about that stuff to bring into my other networks works. So yes, absolutely. I think that it, in, deep information flows among co-authors are, are a big deal. And, and that's certainly not accounted for by the jackson Linsky model. I do think there's still big frictions potentially in the formation. I don't think social, social networks are, I do not think they are efficient, but I don't, I think the main reasons are probably pretty different from the ones that play the main role in that model. Okay. So let's focus on the journey of this paper. So the paper develops a model that distinguishes between incentives to seek advice that depend on either the instrumental payoffs, that's the value of advice, reputational payoffs, that's they are driven by signaling, and interaction payoffs driven by shame. So for those of our listeners who haven't read the paper, can you tell us a bit more about these different mechanisms and the predictions of the model that you have? Yeah. So to be very concrete, let's imagine a case, I'll describe the model in words, we have a seeker who can do better for some material payoff decision, like an investment project, like what you know, whether to uh, apply for a certain job, by getting information from others. So, getting information just increases the returns I get, makes it makes me get a stochastically higher return in the project. But then, we, we what we introduced that's not classical is these image payoffs, uh, which you can think of as being, for example, from reputation. So the most the canonical image kind of payoff is that people care about being thought to be in some sense a good type, which can mean smart, responsible, knowledgeable, whatever it may be. So what we call the reputational payoff comes from this desire to be believed to be a good type. What we call the interaction payoff uh, is d- actually different from that. So our first modeling insight, if you will, is that though following classic work, for example, by Benevolent role, we would be tempted to just keep it to reputational motives. It turns out there's something that they might not capture, but which might be real. And as I'll just flag here that this, our modeling of this very much came from reading work in sociology, including by uh, Goffman, famous theorist of various stigmas. So even aside from managing your reputation, from making other people think better of you, there may also be another reason that you don't want to interact in a compromised state, like that of being potentially ignorant or or revealed to be ignorant, which even if the person knew everything there was to know about your compromised state, you still may feel bad in view of your compromised identity or compromised image. So I just may be, aside from informing you that I'm stupid, I just may be ashamed of having to ask you a stupid question, even if you already knew that I would have a stupid question. And so that part is a separate part of the payoff that as our work reveals does not have the same empirical implications as does the reputational part of the payoff. And so the, the sorry, the, so interaction and reputation are separate concerns. Reputation 
is about managing your managing beliefs about you, kind of protecting your image. And interaction is about how people choose to behave under an already spoiled image, if you will. And so those are different forces. So in your context, it's obviously very difficult to separate these two mechanisms because people may not seek advice due to both reasons at the same time. So how does the design take care of that? How does the design sort of identify these two different mechanisms? So coming up with this design was where he and joined as a collaborator because we together in, in working very closely realized that we needed another arm to worry about this. Let me just describe a little bit poor design. I told you about the payoffs. So the first idea we had was we can test whether reputational, what, what we can ask whether these stigma concerns matter by creating two identical environments, two arms, where in one case, asking a question would have reason to be stigmatized and in another one, they wouldn't. So our idea was we would set up a situation where in one arm, seekers would need information based on whether they were smart or not. We gave them a little IQ test and the better you did on the IQ test, the more clues you had for doing better in the material part of the payoff of the, of the experiment where you could, you know, if you were, if you had a, got a high IQ score, you would get a lot of clues, which would by itself give you a high probability of winning a prize later. But if you had a low IQ score, then you would get few clues and you could ask other people to help you get, get the clues, but you would need to go ask them, which in this arm, you only need to do if you did badly on the IQ test. That's how we created the stigmatized environment. To create the control, basically, we created an environment where instead of needing the information by virtue of stupidity, you need the information by virtue of bad luck. So we just made the allocation of clues completely random. And so in the second arm, you may need clues, but when you, when you actually go ask someone else for them, the reason that you're doing that isn't that you did bad on an IQ test. It's that you just got unlucky. The dice roll gave you a few clues, so there's no stigma to it. And so these two cases are basically the same in that though, except that in the first arm, the stigmatized arm, going there reveals that you're more likely to have gotten low clues and therefore more likely to have a low IQ. In the second arm, it doesn't reveal anything like that. It just reveals that you randomly got unlucky. So that was the first, that's the arm, that, that those arms are enough to identify whether some kind of stigma deters people from seeking. But as you just pointed out, it's not enough to start carving apart the reputational and interaction concerns. So just to be clear, here in this arm, when uh, there are clues that are correlated with your IQ and clues which are potentially random, people are aware which state of the world they're in. So they know that others would have gotten clues that are proportional to how well they did on the IQ test. Is that, exactly. Is that correct? Exactly. We did these arms in different, the, the randomization was at the village level. So we told everyone the rules. We said in your village, this is how clues are allocated. So in the stigmatized villages, everybody knew it was sort of an intelligence game in the in the villages that were with random clues, everybody knew all the, in particular, all the people you might be seeking help from, seeking these extra clues from, knew that if the experiment worked based on dumb luck. And so there is nothing to learn from this person needing information. Right. So, so the difference between these two treatment arms give you the sort of a combined stigma effect. Like what, what uh, is the total stigma effect that prevents people from seeking advice? How do you get at shame? Very good. Exactly. So based on this comparison, we're able to identify that people do seek information less in the stigmatized arm, but we can't tell whether, so there, let me just be very clear what the two possibilities are. The classical economics kind of analysis suggests that people won't go because going reveals lower IQ. They don't like that. They, they, they for good rational reasons, like it better when other people think they're smart. And so just to manage reputation for high IQ, they don't go. But there could be a different, supposing, for example, that the person you were going to go to for advice already knew your IQ score on the test exactly. Hypothetically, suppose that they had uh, overheard you being told the score you got or whatever, then that motive can't apply because they already know whatever you might have indirectly revealed to them by, by the seeking decision. But it may be, when we think about it, it may well be that students, students, uh, the seekers don't go and ask. And the reason I misspoke and said students is I immediately think of the classroom analogy that in my own experience, actually, when the teacher thinks you're a dunce and you, you're you totally, you know, you're you're in a bad situation, you might, on the classical economics account, that should make you feel the freest. I mean, there's nothing to lose. I'm already, I'm already the moron. So why don't I just ask everything that I could possibly want to ask? And maybe some people are like that, but a lot of people in that circumstance, I think, feel extra bad and feel like they're not entitled to speak and they're they're going to have a worse experience in the status of this diminished, contemptible person. And so that's the shame part. So what do we do? 
we do exactly what I suggested. We, I gave you this little overhearing hypothetical, but what we do sometimes is we just tell people, let's say in the random treatment, we say, well, Vatsal got three clues. That was completely random. But by the way, his IQ score was also in the top quintile in our experiment or in the bottom quintile. And so that purely activates the situation where the person knows something about you, which may be either kind of honorable or compromising. It doesn't change the Otherwise, everything is the same as random. But if people did dislike interacting in this lowered status, the people whose potential advisors knew them to be low IQ would presumably that would create that bad shame effect, which has nothing to do with managing reputation anymore, but which is just this effect that I talked through in the classroom example. And so by having this reveal treatment, random clues, but reveal IQ, we were able to get at the pure shame disincentive to interact. That is a very novel design. How did it how did it come about? Like how did the model speak to the design or vice versa? Did this evolve over time? You mentioned in the paper that there's the survey first that, that that you did, and you mentioned about it briefly in the beginning as well, that helped you identify these two concerns as the relevant concerns. But was this the first design that you went with and it was successful, or were there variations that very you good. experimented yeah, yeah. with? So there are two different layers of feedback between the field and theory. And the first one you mentioned is what got us talking about stigma at all, as opposed to some completely different thing. That's the survey that came well before this. And I'm happy that that's actually a whole different part of the story that I think is pretty cool. But I'll bracket that for now. And I'll say that what your, your immediate question is, within this design, how did we come up with reveal? And it was very much about a conversation between the theory and the experiment, the three of us, by this point, we were actively like running things in the field. We were very in the, it's in the sort of hot phase of the research. And we got the basic stigma evidence. And then someone on the team, I think, asked us, we were sort of channeling our more skeptical advisors, someone like maybe Abhijit, either we had a conversation or we just imagined what Abhijit would say. And, and the contrarian view would be like, what if this is not about people being clever about managing reputation at all? What if they would do this? Just from, you know, what if just be someone else learning that they're dumb? Right. So I remember now a few, a few sort of skeptics, people like maybe Abhijit, at least in our minds, and, and, and Andre Schleifer actually did raise these possibilities to me explicitly when I was telling him about this research. He was like, what if this is just less thoughtful? Because for the signaling equilibrium, you need people to be actively thinking about managing their reputation. Now, maybe there's a kind of habit or social institution that they do that anyway, without necessarily being calculating, but but they do it for instrumental reasons. But we thought those skeptics were right, that maybe people just dislike, it makes being dumb salient or top of mind. They dislike interacting in a situation where they know they're dumb. And so we're like, well, we can explore that. We can see whether that's there. So it was, it was with the theory gave a very specific mechanism. People distrusted that mechanism and that made us think maybe there is another mechanism. Maybe there is this. And so we put that, we put it in to the model. We, we saw, ah, if there was this interaction term, this pure dis disutility of interacting while your identity is spoiled, then this would show, this would confound our measurement of reputational concerns in our basic treatment. So what should we do? Well, we should add this revealed arm where you can get the pure effect of the more, what you might think of as the more behavioral or more pure shame effect, right? And so that's that's how that happened. Right, and in terms of the results, what did you find like regarding the relative magnitudes of these concerns? So is it that people are uh, very calculative about what others might infer about their reputation or is it just shame that's driving the effect? What were the relative magnitudes of these two concerns? Yeah, I'll give you the big, the big picture summary. So people are about half as likely, we, you know, our experiment had incentives, people had an opportunity to win a, a phone if they played well, the phone was worth a few days wage. And so of course there's a question of the expected payoff, but it was a considerable, it was definitely real money to these people that they stood to win even an expectation by getting advice. And what we found is people were, the overall effect of stigma made people about 50% less likely to seek. Now decomposing it exactly is actually a tricky thing. So the first, before getting to that, the first thing I can tell you is when we did the reveal treatment, reveal random where clues were random, but IQ was revealed, we found that the pure interaction disutility could account for a similar size drop in seeking. So a naive way to read that would be to say, aha, actually it was pure shame. 
So I'll call it shame from now on. It was pure shame driving the whole thing, not, with that, not even with signaling. But now there's a subtlety to realize, which is that in our revealed treatment, where we tell your advisor, the person who can help you get more clues, your exact IQ, we've revealed the information about your IQ totally. We've revealed, uh, the information we actually revealed, I think, was that this person was in the bottom half of the population because we wanted to make it binary. But now they know this for sure. When you go seek, you do experience some of the some of that. A similar thing happens. They learn something about you being likely to be uh, dumber in the main treatment, the treatment where seeking is IQ driven. They do learn from your showing up that you're likely to have lower IQ. And so, if the shame effect is there, now it kicks in because they think worse of you and you feel bad about that. But notice that the amount they think worse of you is not going to be the full drop that's experienced in the reveal treatment. In the reveal treatment, we fully reveal the information. In the equilibrium of the seeking game, it's only some information that's revealed corresponding to the seeking decision. It's a much noisier measure of your underlying IQ, whether you chose to seek or not, relative to, to the most extreme revelation possible. So punchline here is that though the purest form of shame, where we kick in shame at the strongest volume, the strongest magnitude, and, and fully reveal the information, it could have explained a similar drop. The shame that's operating in the actual original treatment is much smaller than that because the information revealed is much milder than that. And so, and so we have to, so then in order to actually partial it out, we build a structural model. We, we do need to put some structure on the payoffs to be able to estimate things. And, and there we can partial out the effect. Did these results go against your priors? Because you do find a considerable amount of shame that is affecting people's uh, decisions to seek advice. And particularly among people who are presumably already aware of my ability, so among a network peers. Did it go against your priors? Or is this what you were expecting to start with? No. So this was something we totally did not expect. And I mean, in the end, right. In the end, I think the aspects of the structural estimation, I believe, is that both stigma and shame play particular, particularly strong roles. The exact... Coefficients we assign to them depend a lot on the choices we made in modeling it. But what I think was really interesting is that shame, the shame effect seemed to operate more strongly in the estimation. It's revealed to operate more strongly in those relationships where people know each other well, as you just alluded to. So if we, we had data on people's cast memberships and other social relationships, and so we knew if two people basically knew each other socially and uh, work socially close in the sense of being in the same caste group, it was much likelier that shame would operate there, which made a lot of sense to us because that person is likely to know your abilities for cognitive work from just knowing you in real life, know more about them. So there, our model suggests that shame was, was playing, was the dominant force. Whereas in more distant relationships where it might be someone in the village, one misconception people have about these villages is everybody knows everybody, but in fact, that's not true. And there are people who you might only recognize somewhat by face. And then in those relationships, our, our modeling and our estimation reveals that reputation management, signaling, was the dominant force. And so the fact that it correlated in this intuitive way with social structure, uh, we found, was totally not something we had planned to do at all when we got into the project. And at the same time, we felt like we learned a lot. We, it, was, it felt like really good and sensible learning that we were getting for us out of this by going down this path we hadn't anticipated from the beginning. So there are three big components to the paper, like the, the model which helps identify or talk about these mechanisms, the field experiment, and then the structural estimation. Which part of this entire sort of design take you the most amount of time and how much did it take in, in, in total? That's a great question. So the model to write down the model and work it out was probably the fastest part, just because it's it, you know it, it's pencil and paper. It, it, it we we were very the whole team, even though I'm the theorist on the project, the whole team was really you know refining the model and chatting about it and and figuring out what we wanted from it. But that part went very fast. It was preceded by a few months of doing field surveys and sketching out ten. I don't know how many, but ten on a long list and like four on a short list of other mechanisms that we took seriously and even thought about modeling. So the pre-work, which doesn't show up anywhere in the paper, where we conceived of these other mechanisms and modeled them, that took, I would say, on the whole, a few months, maybe six months from beginning to end. Overlapping with that, we were starting to pilot stuff. And I think carrying out the experiments in the field was very intense work, but it took, I think, I think the field part of the work took only about two weeks to actually do, um, maybe two weeks before that to finalize the design. So that was the most intense and fastest. And then after that, 
analyzing, reanalyzing. Um, I guess we did add, we then did some subsequent, we added treatments and we did more. So maybe another month in the field. And then after that, analyzing, discussing, structurally estimating has been a much less intense but long process. And this is the process that I would commit to speeding up if I could. You know, that that was the amount of calendar time used by, by that dwarfs all the other time. And I think even the amount of work and thought and writing, because once we have these results, figuring out what they mean and how we should integrate them together in the structural model that helps us make sense of things, those things go slower because they're less urgent. They're important, but I think for me, one of my main challenges in research is I'd like to make that part go, go faster because it's the key. It's sort of the, the blocking, it's the bottleneck to getting the research fully completed and out there uh, for, you know, to be taken up by the, by the wider world. Right. So, so when I framed it, I think I made it sound very linear, but from the way you're describing it, there was this constant dialogue between the model and the fieldwork, and then you kept removing the mechanisms which were not of interest based on the data that you collected, and then updated the model accordingly. I think this, that part of it was, we. it's more like we decided we didn't want to write a paper about a mechanism that we had preconceived that might be out there weekly or might be. So the, the part, it, it wasn't so much that we were modeling and going back and forth with the with the world, the very first thing we did was we laid out what we thought were five, five-ish important things that could inhibit communication, which in, included things like the public goods problem of who's going to gather and verify this information, or the fact that people might be reluctant to speak, people might be feel stigma in being a, you know, wrong advice giver. All those four, we 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 listed them in English. We talked to people and we did this qualitative work to figure out what villagers thought were the salient frictions to them. That led us to writing down this model. So that's the long pre-field work. Once we wrote down this model, there was then one more back and forth, which I, this thing I told you about, where we added the reveal treatment because of people's skepticism that people were strategically managing reputation. But I think most of going back and forth between modeling and the world was kind of before we ran, ran or really conceived of this experiment, we did something I think that's fairly unusual in at least this, this type of research, psychology-ish research, which is that we really wanted to have people tell us what they thought were the relevant frictions. And we were like, we can, we can be short-order cooks. Once you tell us what friction is inhibiting you, we can think of a model that will capture it and allow us to measure it. But we didn't want to be modeling our pet theory. We wanted to be modeling what seemed real to our subjects. Right. And and just to sort of end this segment, how many years was it between the time when you attended Abhijit's talk with Arun and when you had the first draft of the paper? The talk was in 2009. The field surveys broadly about mechanisms were in 2014. And that's all prehistory for this paper. The first design for this type of paper, I, for this type of field experiment happened in 2015. It was carried out in 2016. This is a paper that spent, I was really excited that you wanted to talk about it because it spent a long time sort of on the shelf. We, After that, we have really been focused on how can we optimally interpret and sort of organize the both the theory and the field data in a way that will you know, be fruitful. And it inspired a separate paper in the meantime, which got executed and published and everything in the meantime. Honestly, some of it was just, was, was I think, needless delay. But, but since then, it has been sort of waiting for us to feel like we fully understand how to interpret and present, especially the structural results. And so, but that's just, that's just delay. And to be honest with you, some amount of, I don't know what to call it, some amount of intellectual procrastination, where you feel like once you really nail the interpretation, the paper will, will reach its full intellectual potential. And it's sort of, before you feel like you haven't, if you feel like there's some important clarity you can get out of the data, which you don't yet have, I'm reluctant to sort of like, I mean, the working paper is out there, people can see the numbers, but I want to nail that last part before before it fully flies the nest. So in, in terms of flying the nest, can you tell us a bit more about the journal submission process, if, if you started that for this paper, or more broadly, what your advice would be for for early career researchers who are new to the process? Yeah, let me talk a little more broadly than this paper, because I think, again, on, on this paper, I think my own procrastination has been not good for it. And so my first advice is don't procrastinate. Like people, it, especially early career, I can afford it more now. And, and it's sort of a, people know from, you, they see their advisors often, you know, nursing a paper for many years. But I think from, I've learned from my, my most impressive co-authors, Arun, Evan Sadler, 
that having this twitchy thing, I, I think there's a subtle piece of advice here. I think it's really good to be to view submission as an urgent mandate because it it really makes you take seriously the parts of the paper that you might otherwise be resisting finishing. Like you might really not like writing introductions or really proving those tricky technical things about the model and or whatever it is for you, you're going to have to do those things. So I think the the high energy approach of let's finish a draft soon that we can send to a journal to get feedback is a really good heuristic. And one that we, we did have in this paper, we, we sent this paper out not too long after completing it and got feedback and it was a, a journal rejection. But more broadly, for almost all my papers have a first journal rejection, but my co-authors that I most admire in terms of their production function have this habit of, as one of my co-authors put it, having the referees do some of the work for you because referees, good, you know, at good journals, referees will think seriously about the paper, will tell you things that you might not have at all expected to hear, and will contribute a lot to the development of the work, which you might, you know, at a talk, you're very lucky if anybody takes your paper seriously enough to give you meaty feedback, but submitting is a way to get some real intellectual feedback. And so I think my first piece of advice is after what you view as the key core of the paperwork, paper's effort is done, send it one time at least, okay? So that's that's a huge, and, and expect rejection. Expect Think of it as a way to get comments. Expect rejection and get, get comments. So that's step one. That is very helpful. And while we are talking about advice, another thing early career researchers sort of grapple with is the decision to work on multiple projects at the same time. So thinking about your own network of projects, some appear very tightly connected and complementary. So I'm thinking right now of the uh, project that you mentioned with uh, Apichit Panerji, Emily Breza, and Arun Chandrasekhar on the Indian demonetization. So now, do you think there is some value to working sequentially or simultaneously on complementary projects? Like to some extent, it let's say ensures yourself against uh, this sort of procrastination or potential periods of dormancy. Yeah, that's a great question. So that goes into the next, like, so I, I do think every paper needs a very intense period of work where you're kind of primarily focused on that paper. You want to get it done. You want to get it, you, you view submission as this important milestone and you do that. And then, right, in this case, after soon, very soon after that, the Indian demonetization was going on and my co-authors, Emily, Arun, and Abhijit, we, we were all talking and they were convinced that the demonetization was a super important time of information flow, which might be impeded by the concerns that we've been studying. And so we, really, this is my co-authors, have this incredible athleticism in carrying out the demonetization experiment in about three weeks during the height of the, when the, the Indian policy of, of removing from circulation uh, large notes was being implemented in a very hasty and unexpected way, we sort of managed to piggyback off that and do the experiment, thanks to Emily's infrastructure in the field and, and um, amazing execution by my empirical co-authors. So I think it was really good that we, you know, it was really good that we were willing to work in parallel before this paper was even R&R &R anywhere. I think before this paper was fully cleaned up and written, we felt like we had an opportunity to use these ideas and in some sense, the demonetization paper ended up, even if this paper uh, were to never get published, the one we're talking about, demonetization took the model, took the basic forces we're interested in, and showed they seemed to matter in a high stakes true field experiment where we just varied how we disseminated information. So we sort of, in that sense, I think it was a great idea. Oftentimes, your first implementation of a project isn't going to be the highest impact or the most, it's just not going to be the necessarily the best way for the ideas to make their way into the world. And so I think being open to I've, this, I've been working on this, but now this other thing has come along, let me do that. That's been a very positive thing for me. In particular, this agenda has resulted in at least one publication, thanks to being open to parallel, right? But then I think the major challenge is, how do you let this openness to parallelism coexist with getting individual projects done too? And I think that's a real trade-off and challenge in, in the sense that that these times of intense availability for one project will lead to dormancy for other projects. And so I think a skill that young researchers have to develop, and everybody will have their own production function. I'm really bad at splitting up my day and say, work for three hours on this project and three hours on this project. I'm, I'm going to be mostly good at, you know, intensely focusing on one project at a time. And I think it's very, it's been the only thing that's really worked for me is scheduling times to go physically visit or have like intense blocked weeks for projects and then say, okay, during those times, I will be 
will be our goal is to push this to the next milestone, let's say the next submission. Um, and I think being concrete about those milestones and never letting a paper languish too long without a milestone, that's something that I really encourage my students to, to do. Okay, now that we are reaching the end of the podcast, I have a few questions uh, which are which are sort of more abstract and less to do with this paper, but more to do with you as a researcher. So what does a typical work day look like for you? Like, do you try to block specific times to think of new ideas? Or in general, how do you allocate time between these various activities? It's a great question. Uh, I think my own work, work schedule is, is not regimented, certainly at the level of days. I, to be honest, right now, for years, I've been in what I might call an overloaded regime where there's not really room to organize a very structured scheme of work because they're often what you might call fires. Abhijit once described his, his life as like putting out fires. And though I, I have much less on my plate than he does, it, it does often feel like a co-author gets antsy and says, we haven't had this, we haven't resubmitted this paper. We haven't put out a working draft of this paper that we mostly have. Let's do it. And then I, what happens then is we, I say, let's block a week or let me go, let me go visit you or you come visit me. And during that time, it's sort of intense. Those days look like meet at 10 in the morning, plan to work until, until the end of the day, maybe have dinner too, depending on kind of personal obligations. And, but the, the, you know, those are intense periods where you're actually maybe not getting maximum efficiency out of that time, because as I said, you're often learning about other things, but, but those times projects do move forward because you feel bad, you know, before that week, people will typically hustle and, and bring their stuff to a better place. And then after that, people often want to say, okay, we made progress. We're going to, so those, I have those weeks. And in the remaining time, honestly, it's a challenge. I think one of the things I'm trying to develop is actually, if I could block three hours on a typical day to work on the main research job for that day, I, the times when I've done that has been very productive, but meetings, research, administrative advising, those things really like multiply and will eat time. So I, I'm still learning. The only, my most effective research strategy has been this trips, trips and intense focus and deadlines and milestones. Without that, I think I'm not. I'm, I, I have. There are many people I know who I admire for this slow and steady kind of daily blocking thing, and that's that hasn't been my style. But I think it'll have to be over time, especially with you know in the future. I you know when I'll probably have children, and that I think I know from colleagues that that really forces you to. So I've had the luxury of not having to be so organized because of this. Uh, you know, freedom to do things that going forward might not be so realistic. Right. And just two quick follow-up questions on that. Do you do you work during weekends or, or do you think there is a value to sort of separating that work just during during the week and then weekends not so much? My most productive years actually, I think I I was probably at my at my most efficient and productive in grad school. And that at that time I had a, a strict kind of personal rule of of not working weekends. Uh, one one weekend day. I, I would take one day fully off. Um, I know Isaiah Andrews, for example, has actually given, I've seen him give that advice to students. And, and I think that, that's a great idea. I think as I've gotten less good at blocking time to take off, I've also gotten less efficient. So my personal end of one time series observation is that, um, and I do try to, so I, I end up, I do work weekends and nights whenever the inspiration hits. But I find that the value of that is is mostly both styles work, and it certainly is fun to just power, you know, when you're when you're inspired, just really focus on it and don't and don't feel like you have to stop. But if I had to think about, even though I live mostly on the other side of the less structured work work whenever rest whenever framework, I actually my aspiration is to be more a bit more regimented because I feel like my own experiences that those times for me have been felt better, been lower stress, um, and, and just as or more productive. And in terms of thinking of new ideas, so you said most of your time uh, right now goes into putting out fires, but when you've reserved time, let's say, just to think of new ideas, do you find yourself reading papers from other fields? So for example, in this very paper that we spoke about, you uh, you mentioned Irving Goffman's work on social stigma and various psychological studies on shame. So to, to draw inspiration, do you do you see yourself reading texts in psychology or sociology and then thinking how it may apply to economic contexts? Yeah, I mean, I'm very, my interests are very broad. I, I read a fair amount of philosophy, for example, mostly for leisure, but I, I you know, that we do. So in the paper, we, we discovered somewhere in the middle of, of working out the model and the interpretation of the Forces. There was a friend, actually, a, po a postdoc I knew who was in literature, and he was obsessed with this guy, Goffman, Irving Goffman. And 
I think it may have come up when I told him about stigma. Yeah, I did ask for reading recommendations on stigma in an unrelated context, actually. And he said, you must read Goffman. But he'd been saying that for some people have a pet thinker and Goffman was this guy's pet thinker. And so he was a, a totally unrelated guy. And I did learn a little bit about Goffman and I thought this, this is relevant, but I didn't have time to read his book. And then when I was writing the introduction for this paper, um, it felt to me that that was my section I was responsible for. And at that time, not in a leisurely way, so what happened in a leisurely way over dinners or whatever was learning that Goffman existed and that people kept mentioning him in this context. And that to me happens, I think this was in a Facebook comment discussion, actually, that I remember really learning of Goffman's relevance to this. But I, on Twitter, it happens a lot that someone will bring up something and you learn, aha, this is relevant. So I think my leisure time learning things is actually learning about these distant connections where that might happen in like a random social meeting or, a, or, or on social media. And then when I tend to really read and get into the details of things is when writing, because they feel like if I'm going to be talking about Goffman, I better know what he said. So I, when I was, it was my job to write the introduction. I set aside a flight, I think, to read the Goffman book and I read it and then I was able to, but I don't spend much time personally, broadly, just kind of reading psychology or sociology to learn things. I think that's very admirable, but to me, it, I, I get these sort of impressionistic connections from stuff people say. And then I act on them in terms of learning more deeply when I actually have to incorporate them, write about them. There I feel enough guilt about being ignorant that I'm actually going to learn properly what the content is. Um, the psychology studies that we cite, we actually just asked an RA to read psychology literature for us and summarize because the, so the social psychology papers for me aren't much fun to read. And we were just like, we know they talk about shame and stigma. We know it's not going to be the same. We need to be able to say why it's not the same. So we just hired an RA to sort of understand and make the distinction for us. But that was not something that I had any um, personal passion for doing. So impressionistic connections with stuff people say brings me to uh, Twitter. So for those of our listeners who aren't on Twitter or who don't follow you just yet, your Twitter account has been, I must say, a, a source of very sage advice over the years. So you recently wrote, and I quote, that the thing I find myself most often asking of writers of economic theory is to make technical writing more skimmable. So what exactly do you mean by skimmability and how does one do it, especially when it comes to theory papers? Yeah, so where this thread came from is thinking about my experience as a reader of research and writing a paper of my own or as an editor. I serve as an associate editor at JET um, where I have to understand papers reasonably quickly or try to. And there, you really want the paper to help you as you look at any part of it. You want it to be possible to look at the main theorem and fairly quickly backfill what you see in the main theorem. You see some compared, you know, important part of a theorem is that a certain parameter is varying in several regimes. And you want to know what, what that parameter means and why it's important that the answer is what it is. And you want to do that without having to fill in everything from the rest of the paper. You don't, you want to do that without having to read the whole paper linearly up to that point. And so I, my advice was basically that if you look at your own paper, which even after writing that thread, I was looking at some of my own old published papers and thinking, am I living up to the advice? And it's very it's, it's hard as an author because as an author, you have this curse of knowledge or, or what might be more accurately a curse of familiarity where every little symbol in that paper is your is your friend. So it's very hard to see it with the eyes of someone who for whom these symbols mean nothing and are irritating obstructions. And so... You, you know, to understanding. And so I think my advice is basically, especially if you've been away from a paper, as, as most of us have many projects going on, often we'll be away from a paper for a few weeks, perhaps. And then if, when you go back to your overly file or whatever you use, and you go to the statement of your main theorem, and you ask yourself, what would this be like for me, if I just flip to this page, as a, and knowing that this is the, where the main theorem is found, as someone who had only very superficially looked at the paper, maybe read the abstract and a bit of the introduction, would this make any sense to me? Would I be able to figure out, you know, am I using standard notation so that people can guess what things mean, even if they haven't been very clearly defined right there? Am I putting in little reminders where I can? So I think just looking from that perspective, I, if you do what, I guess my, my, my meta advice, which it, I could give a much more concrete version, but the big picture is if you put yourself in the shoes of this browser, your own paper will look different to you because then you won't be thinking, oh, am I saying this in the most precise or the most beautiful way? But you'll be thinking of this, am I, as, am I saying this in the most superficially legible way? And often adding a 
sentence like what this theorem really says is that you know your intervention will be monotonic in the eigenvalues of the network for example that's i was looking at an old paper of mine and i neglected to say that kind of punchline that implication right after and i wish i had i wish i'd given a reader who just opened to the main theorem more footholds to learn learn the punchline and i think this more broadly, looking at your own talks and your own papers, not only just from your own perspective, what do you think is intellectually most important, but also from the perspective of consumption, what, what, what is going to be easy to process, what is going to be fast, what, 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 what can someone get out of this paper if they only get one thing? Keep asking those questions of yourself. It leads to much higher impact research because it leads you to confront the reality that most people will only engage with your paper for those few short minutes. That is very, very helpful. Thank you. So now to conclude, and I know you've given us uh, pieces of advice throughout this podcast, but what is the one single piece of advice that you would like to give to researchers who are trying to produce a theory paper? That's a vast question. And I sanity, not to speak of humility, requires me to say that I don't know the answer to that. But I, there are a few, there are two or three things I've observed that I think are super useful heuristics to add to your palette of heuristics that you sometimes apply. One of them is, you know, some notion of action or completion bias, especially before you have, I think this advice will vary over the cycle, life cycle, but before you have a lot that is real, it is very important to be impatient to have stuff in the books that's real. And so a piece of advice I got from from an advisor of mine is that while you're relatively young, it's certainly, you know, in the first years of graduate school and, and as a postdoc, you're playing it's, it, with the house's money and that various clocks that will be active later haven't yet started. And during that time, if you can use that time not to just invest and enjoy freedom, but if you also use that time to be impatient, to produce one concrete thing, that is a super useful heuristic for not getting stuck in a, in a place where you're not sure yet whether you even like to do this kind of work or whether you're capable of it. I think that action bias. So if you'll permit me, that's, piece, that's part A of the advice. And part B of the advice is once you know you can produce something that, with, that you forced yourself to be antsy about sending off a paper to a journal, then I think part B is give yourself permission to have your own ideals about what research should be out there. I think a lot of people say, well, I've seen a lot of variations of famous model X being published. I guess I'll go work on the Holmstrom model with this tweak. And if that's what you really want to do, great. But I think a lot of people skip the step where they're allowed to think like, what's really important? What's missing in the journals that I would love to see? Why am I not doing that? Ask yourself. I think that's intention with the previous advice, because if you that tends to be a longer path, like the paper I just told you about started more from that, like, what should we be doing? Let's think about that. Well, it's taken 10 years to get from the first germs of that idea, more than a decade, to get from the first idea to an output, the publication now of the demonetization paper. That's fine. So I I think it's important to both have an action bias so that you're getting concrete rewards for your productivity. And at the same time, a big picture bias that helps you think, what do I want to do that is distinctively mine? What can I add to the intellectual space that wouldn't be there without me? And I think that that second one is a thing that is hard and painful, but, and many researchers never want to be really doing that. But I think for everyone, it's worth exploring the option value of having this more ambitious mental orientation because it's really good for society when those more idiosyncratic ideas, those ideas that aren't yet represented have a chance to make their way out um, into the literature. Thank you so much, Ben. This brings us to the end of the podcast. This was certainly very exciting and helpful to me, and I'm sure it will be so for the listeners as well. Thanks for making the time. Thank you very much. It was a really real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.